You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here's your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema, and my guest today is Marcus Engel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, Marcus, wh- where did you grow up? So I grew up my first 10 years of life in St. Louis, Missouri, and then whenever I was in, uh, when I was in elementary school, my family moved to rural Missouri, a little town called High Hill, and that's where I uh, spent the rest of my school years. Did you always think that you would end up, you know, working in healthcare? Uh, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I, I feel very blessed that I had um, three of my four aunts were nurses. And so I had a lot of healthcare around me, but neither of my parents were in healthcare. And um, honestly, until I was 18 years old and became a patient myself, I didn't really, I'd never even thought about healthcare as a, as a vocation or a field or anything like that. So how did that change happen then? So, so I became a patient when I was 18, uh, six months after my high school graduation, I came home for the weekend and I went to a St. Louis blues hockey game with some friends on Saturday night. And it was after that game that the car in which we were riding, uh, was struck broadside by a drunk driver. And that crash not only took 100% of my sight instantaneously and permanently, um, but I also had what is called a Lafort three fracture. And Lafort three is a surgical term, which basically means everything from the hairline through the chin uh, is fractured or broken or crushed, uh, some way diminished. So I spent a lot of time as a patient following that motor vehicle accident. I spent a lot of time as a patient going through hundreds of hours of surgery and months of uh, hospitalization and rehab. Uh, And that's really where my feet were kind of dipped into this idea of of healthcare as a bigger ecosystem, I guess, than than just my little personal 18-year-old life. My God, I'm I'm sorry to hear that uh, about that accident. So were your other friends, were they much safer than you? Uh, I was definitely the one who was hurt the worst. Uh, my, my friend who was driving, I was riding in the front passenger seat, shotgun position, and my friend who was driving uh, had some vertebrae in his neck and upper back that were fractured. Uh, but the two that were sitting behind us in the car really didn't have much at all. A little bit of whiplash and maybe some cuts and bruises. But, um, yeah, we went from me basically facing death. Uh, and by that, I mean that laying in the street, my head and face were so destroyed from broken bones that the uh, paramedics had to do a cricothorotomy, I believe is the actual term, the crike in the street where they created the alternative breathing passage in my throat. So I don't know if you can get much closer to death than that. And I, um, yeah, I, I feel very, very fortunate that, uh, that I didn't move over that line from this world to the next. You are truly a living miracle, man. Um, 
How long was the process of healing? So initially, I was in the hospital for a very, very short uh, six weeks. And I say that that's very short compared to all the damage that was done, the hundreds of hours of surgery. and um, But the, the, the full process, even laying in that hospital room, having just learned that I would be blind, I... Um, and I would also be going through hundreds of hours of surgery. Um, I couldn't speak at the time because of the trach in my throat. And so I was writing everything out longhand and I, I set my goal and I wrote out, I want to get back into college. I want to be with my friends again. And the entire process until I could get back into college was roughly two years. Uh, that was a year of medical recovery and then about six months of rehab and a month or two training with my first CNI dog and, until I could finally accomplish that goal of getting back and trying to pick up the pieces where they'd been left off. Your passion to go back, I mean, you were in the hospital and you're writing goals. Uh, that speaks tremendously about resilience. What kept you going? Well, I don't know if there's a single thing that kept me going other than just basic math. Right. I mean, we look at the average life expectancy in America and you subtract eight, you know, you subtract 18 from that. That's a long life ahead of me. Mm. And I thought, well, if I still had life, what am I going to do with this life? Am I going to uh, sit around and fritter it away or um, weep it away or, or drink it away? Or what am I going to do? Or am I going to, realize that life is a gift and to try to use this life that I still have to do some good in this world. Did you always have a, such a positive outlook on life? I, I, I think so. I think so. I, I also am old enough to understand my, my privilege in this world that I came from a, a suburban middle-class family with two parents and uh, four grandparents very involved in my life, and, um, and and so I didn't I didn't have a lot of the adverse childhood experiences that that others may have had, and so I guess I didn't really realize that I had a positive outlook because I didn't have as many things to worry about, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't have parents that were absentee or uh, addicts or anything like that, and so um, I think I always have had a pretty positive outlook but in that hospital bed it was it wasn't it wasn't positive it was just reality it was just reality that i've got to get my life back i've got to do uh something with this life that i still have so what happened at the hospital that gave you this strong sense of purpose after your healing well there's a there's a few different things the what i what i try to instill to my audiences, and I'm a, I'm a professional speaker. I'm also an adjunct faculty at uh, University of Notre Dame where I get to teach pre-meds. And what I always want to instill is, is the story that took place that first night in the emergency room. Uh, when they pulled me in there and I was hanging by a thread, there was a 20-year-old patient care tech uh, named Jennifer, who held my hand that whole night. 
And any time that she could tell that I was conscious and was in the here and now, uh, she would tell me her name. She would say, Marcus, my name is Jennifer. Uh, you were in a car accident. You're in the hospital. And then Jennifer would repeat the two most compassionate words that I think anyone can say to another person. And those words are, I'm here. And I didn't even know where here was, but I knew that in this, this, this hurricane of pain that I was in, I knew I was not alone. So I try to teach that the very foundations of caregiving, the very foundation of our humanity is human presence. When we as human beings can witness vulnerability and suffering in another human being, and we can be present and attentive to that suffering, that that is, that's not only what we do in healthcare, that's what we do as human beings, right? We, we are witnessing the suffering of others and we are trying to be present for that suffering. So, so that is, that's the title of one of my books is I'm Here, Compassionate Communication and Patient Care. The other thing I try to uh, get those who are in healthcare to understand and realize is what a valuable role they play in a patient's healing process. Uh, I, I always say that may have been an average Tuesday on the job for Jennifer, but it was the worst night of my life. All of us as human beings, we're, we're vulnerable to compassion fatigue, to burn, and I'm specifically talking about people in healthcare. Um, we get burned out. We get compassion fatigue. We, uh, we realize that systemically in healthcare, things are not always set up the most efficient way that, that values the people delivering the care. And that's where I try to get people to remember that, like I said, it's an average day on the job for a healthcare professional, but it might be the most defining moment in the life of that patient. And when we're in that position to, to be able to witness that suffering in others and be present for it, I feel like that's just when we are genuinely at our, at our most human. With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Angels Grace Hospice brings comfort, dignity, and peace to help people with a life-limiting illness live every moment of life to the fullest while providing support for loved ones. We perform hospice care in your home, nursing home, or assisted living community, depending on your individual circumstance. For more information, you can check us out at www.angelsgracehospice.com or you can call us at 1-888-444-8341. To comfort always, this is our work. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Marcus. Uh, before the break, you spoke about Jennifer and, and the powerful words she told you when you were unconscious after the accident, I am here. And you said when, those, when you heard those words, you didn't know where here what here even means. Now, at what point in your life and in your recovery did that click for you as a powerful caregiving cornerstone? I knew how much her words meant to me in that moment, laying in the hospital bed, laying in that emergency room. Um, but I don't think it was for maybe a decade that I really 
understood how valuable that can be for other people. I only thought about it from my own perspective. And so, so thinking about this on, on a grand scale, it's, it's, those words were spoken to me when I was suffering, but I can teach others to, um, to use those same words and to practice those, those techniques of presence so that they too can have patients that feel that same amount of comfort that I felt from Jennifer. I always say that, that simple human presence is the cornerstone of caregiving, but I think we can take that further, that simple human presence is it's the foundation of our humanity and not just from my my own lived experience but i feel like another word for compassion is presence and presence for compassion the the work that the 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 definition that we give for compassion in the course i teach with my pre-meds is that compassion is witnessing suffering being moved by that suffering having a desire to ease that suffering and then actually doing something about it. That is the definition of compassion. The other definition of compassion and presence that I use is non-judgmental awareness, non-judgmental awareness. And it's very difficult. I, I, I know there's a quote by C.S. Lewis that says something like, man does not know how hard it is to be good until he actually tries to be good. And I think about that too, as human beings, we are constantly judging. We are constantly, that the room is too hot, that this chair isn't comfortable, that my knee hurts, that I'm hungry, you know, that I'm tired. Uh, we're constantly judging things around us. And when we really work to not judge, I feel like when we step out of compassion, we're stepping into judgment. And when we step out of judgment, we are moving into compassion. So you look at compassion and presence as, as they, they intertwine. It looks like there's also an element of intentionality because Jennifer could have sat in that room and maybe spent some time on her phone, but there's the intentionality of her sensing your moment of awareness and holding your hand and continuing to remind you that I'm here. I think that that's really powerful there. I also take it to um, beyond that idea of presence that that working in healthcare is a privilege. Working in healthcare um, makes us lucky, and that was communicated to me by my my favorite nurse. Her name is Barb, and Barb. The first time I interacted with her, it was right after a twenty-five hour facial reconstructive surgery, and I was taken to. Uh, her part of the ICU, and when she introduced me, she said, hey, Marcus, my name is Barb, and I'm a nurse here in the ICU, and I get to take care of you for the next eight hours. And I remember thinking, she said, I get to take care of you, right? When we get to work in this sacred field of healthcare, um, that is a privilege, that is an honor. And whether you're clinical or non, or you're behind the scenes in bookkeeping or administration, we all get to do what I think is, is, is our kind of our mission as, as human beings, which is to help other human beings. 
that's why I always say that, that healthcare is such sacred work. Most work is respectable, um, but things like sales and manufacturing, respectable, not necessarily sacred, but when we can be there for those who are suffering and in the world of hospice, that's not just the, that's not just the patient themselves. It's also the family members, right? Yeah. So I, I try to get healthcare professionals to realize we're not just giving compassion to the person in the bed. We're also practicing that same compassion for the family members who are suffering too. Most American healthcare institutions have this medical mode of care where the focus is providing all the, the necessary best medical care. But with your experience with Jennifer and Barbara, uh, there's this tremendous uh, patient-centered care, you know. Um, so how, how can you create that culture to be adopted within the healthcare system? I think we keep reminding ourselves to be present right it's it's not something that we that we do once and never think about again it, it's it's a constant reminding ourselves to come back to the present moment i i feel like when we have that amount of of time and space to remember to come back to the present moment um we're more able to deliver that care that patients feel in their heart and in their emotions in their head um they're feeling that and honestly the the evidence my my masters in narrative medicine uh tells us that when patients get to tell their stories when patients get to help uh recite their stories or the stories of their injury or their loss it, it helps them better mentally frame those events and that also reduces pain and less use of narcotics, less use of, uh, of anti-anxiety uh, anti drugs, et cetera. When people get to share their stories, that also helps in helping to ease their suffering. So creating an opportunity where people can share their stories. Listening right? Listening, yeah. <laughs> active listening, right? It, it, it's, 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 it's not a difficult, it, it's a simple concept, but it's hard to do, right? Like meditation, it's simple, but it's hard. <laughs> and, and I, I often think of, of that, that it's, uh, when, when we're, when we're letting patients uh, tell their stories, a lot of times healthcare practitioners might feel like, Oh my gosh, I have to listen to this story, the person's story about their cat that died 10 years ago. This is taking time out of my day. I should be taking care of other patients without fully realizing that, yes, by listening, you are taking care of that patient. You And just remembering that, that when a patient gets their opportunity to share their account, their story, their narrative, that is, that is helping, that is helping them physically, not just mentally and emotionally. Well, that will take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. 
That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Soleben, and we continue our conversation with Marcus. And when you shared your story about Jennifer, I remember a few years ago I was a hospice chaplain in Chicago, and I was I had this patient. Uh, she was in her nineties and nonverbal. Every time I went, she was always eyes closed in bed. And um, one day I held her hand, and I had a book of poems, and I read some poems to her, and prayed with her. As I was getting ready to leave. Uh, to remove my hand, she grabbed it tight and pulled it back towards her. And that's when, to me, it clicked that, wow, she's getting something powerful from this. So uh, Jennifer's story uh, reminded me about that. Uh, it's really, sometimes we take those things for granted. Or we think that maybe the patient doesn't even recognize us. I have to think that that Jennifer holding my hand that night when my head was swollen up to the size of a basketball, everyone had to wonder, had my brain been damaged as well? And so Jennifer continued to hold my hand, even though she had no assurances that I was actually conscious of her. And boy, the, the story that you shared does so much uh, then click with what Jennifer was doing, that you're doing it in hopes that it will help a patient, but you really don't know. And at least with Jennifer, um, for 20 years, I never knew who she was. I had no idea what her position in the emergency room was. And even some members of my friends and family would question if she was actually even real. I was on a lot of narcotics that night and every chance I could have uh, dreamt her up. And then 20 years after that crash, I was speaking at the hospital that saved my life, Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. And um, I told the story of Jennifer, but I had no idea what had ever happened to her. And following one of my speeches, the director of the patient experience department of the hospital came up and said, Marcus, we found Jennifer. And not only did they find her, but she was standing right there in front of me and I got to hold her hands and tell her thank you. And that was whenever I learned that that, that night in the emergency room, Jennifer was just a 20-year-old patient care tech. She didn't have years of experience, and uh, she didn't have a whole alphabet soup after her name. But even as a young person with pretty minimal medical training, she still knew human being to human being that the greatest gift she could give me was presence. Since you're on the hospice chaplaincy show, uh, let me ask you this. What role did spirituality or faith play in your recovery? Oh, that's a that's a great question, and I suppose I should give a little more background. That that night, the 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 night of the wreck, uh, the friends that I was with, I had made during my high school years when we all attended the same church camp together, and we continued our friendship outside of the the boundaries of the church camp, and um, and so I, I was very involved with my state's denomination of uh, youth activities. So I had 
my home church. I had uh, the youth groups that I was in throughout the state. I knew quite a few different pastors within my denomination. And so following the wreck, um, other than my parents, the, the first person that I remember speaking to, quote unquote, speaking to um, was, was my pastor who came and held my hand and prayed with me uh, in, the, in the very, very early hours of recovery. And uh, so, so while I was in the hospital, there were, of course, hospital, chap uh, hospital chaplains around. But many of those hospital chaplains, well, I guess I should, what we talked about earlier, they showed their presence. They actively listened and observed what was going on around me. And they saw that I had deep relationships with many, um, with many spiritual caregivers. And so a lot of the hospital chaplains took a little bit of a step back because they knew that my spiritual care was being delivered by others. And I think, once again, we can just look at witnessing and observing uh, and then acting in an appropriate manner. That I, I often feel, because I've gotten to work with a few different uh, chaplaincy organizations across the country, I often wonder, huh, I wonder what my experiences would be had those hospital chaplains uh, really been there. I would have gotten to witness uh, other, other spiritual caregiving than I was receiving. So what have you learned about life from your accident? Wow, what have I learned about life? I guess, I guess it's not just from the accident, but it's also from now nearly 30 years of experience too. And, and higher education for that matter. I know, I know that one of the things that I, that I always try to talk about in my speeches too is to tell a story uh, that came from my, my 16 year old summer. <laughs> the summer that I was 16, I was a high school athlete. I was playing football that, that fall and that summer and going through practices and uh, one day after practice, I, I reversed my car and backed right into my principal's car and caused $1,800 worth of damage to his car. And it, I hated that. I love my principal. He's a great person. And I had to go to his office and tell him what I had done. And uh, instead of punishing me or berating me, he shook my hand and he said, Marcus, this is not a big deal. He said, you're going to find that there are so many things in this world that you can't change. He said, change the things you can and don't worry about the rest because there's nothing you can do about those things anyway. Just change the things you can. Hmm. And even though that wasn't learned from that wreck, I brought that piece of advice into pretty much every aspect of my life since I was 16. You change the things you can. Laying in that hospital bed, I couldn't perform a surgery to try to regain my sight. I couldn't, I couldn't do plastic and reconstructive surgery on myself. But I determined that there's one thing that I had control over that no one else had any say over, and that's what goes on up here, right? What goes on between my ears. Did I want to look at this as um, a terrible tragedy that could never be overcome? Or did I want to look at this, that this is still my life 
I'm still the same person. My life has changed, but I'm still the same person. And do I want to use this gift of life to try to help others? Or do I just want to sit around and feel sorry for myself? And that seemed like an awfully long life of sitting around feeling sorry for myself. So I still come back to that, um, to that piece of advice, change the things you can. It looks like many people are drawn to the other side of feeling sorry for themselves because they feel like their entire life as they had imagined it, their dreams as they had imagined it, is changed forever. But what I like about you is you, you, you had this amazing outlook on life and you knew that even if your initial dreams might have been shattered, you knew there was a lot about life that you could make happen. And that takes a strong, really tremendous mental strength, which is not easy. And I don't know how you were able to cultivate it or whether it was modeled for you from childhood, but it is incredible and it's rare. Thank you. Thank you. I, 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 I really think that people don't know what they can go through until they have to go through it. You don't know the strength you, you can have. Uh, until you actually are faced with something that seems insurmountable. Uh, I, I don't, I'm sure if you would have asked me a week before my wreck, you know, would you rather be blind the rest of your life and go through tons of pain and suffering and hospitalization, or would you rather just be dead? I probably would have chosen just to die. But little did I know what I was capable of at that point in time. And I guess I came close enough to death to realize that um, at 18 years old, that's not something that I wanted to, to um, I didn't want to be dead. I, now, I, of course, had times of, of um, I don't know, maybe even suicidal ideology uh, in those early days of recovery. But ultimately, I, I had to look at the fact that I'm still alive and I want to do something with this life. That's why you are that inspirational figure. What are your final thoughts? Boy, my final thoughts. I, I love, love, love the work of chaplaincy because you get such an opportunity to, to help be present to those who are suffering. And it's, and it's, with, no, uh, it's, with, it's with no other agenda, right? There, you, you know that this individual who is on hospice is ultimately going to pass at some point. And I feel like what an honor to be part of someone's dying process and to help ease that dying process, maybe with something as simple as presence, just being present. Well said. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Uh, sure. My, my website is marcusengel.com. That's M-A-R-C-U-S-E-N-G-E-L.com. Uh, my podcast is called Compassion and Courage, Conversations in Healthcare. And uh, feel free to reach out on social media, website, et cetera, et cetera. Marcus, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Marcus Engel, and thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. 
For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.